Okay, how many of you brought your little quizzes with you? All right, let's run over them. Let's go over them and see how we did. You can do this any way you want. So the only way you cheat is if you put somebody else's name on it. That'd be it. Other than that, you're on your own. Okay, number one, most people who read the Bible don't actually know how to study the Bible. That's true. The Bible is the most important book one could study. That's true. There's no biblical support that serious study was done to accurately interpret the Bible. That's false. In 2 Peter 3.16, the words untaught and unstable are in a context of misinterpretation of Scripture. That's true. Number five, if an accurate understanding of God's word is neglected, then the church loses its authority and blessings. That's true. Number six, the best way to read the Bible is subjectively. That's false. Number seven, true Bible study initially begins by looking for a blessing. That's false. Number eight, not every interpretation of a text is legitimately or doctrinally plausible. That is true. Number nine, a true understanding and interpretation of God's word begins with reading. That's true. A true interpretation of God's word demands a proper relationship with the Holy Spirit, and that's true. Fill in the blanks. Ignorance of God's word is not a gift of the Holy Spirit. If you use something else in there, let me know what you use, and we'll see if we'll give you the credit. What would you use? Trait. Huh? Trait. Trait? Yes. What do you think, group? All right, well, they accept that. They'll go with that. A result. We'll go with that. We'll let that one go, too. Okay, most people know how to read the Bible. They don't know how to study the Bible. You got that one? All right. Yeah, we'll accept interpret. We'll accept interpret on that. All right, God's Word needs to be treated as an inspired textbook. Authoritative textbook? Yeah, okay. All right. A true course in how to study the Bible should cause a believer to be a very careful thinker. How about what? Student. Student, yeah, that's good. We'll go with that. Yeah, that's good. To arrive at a true interpretation, two main systematic studies are needed, systematic theology and systematic Bible book study. Number 16, a hyper-literalist always misses the point of the context. Number 17, the only true way to arrive at a true interpretation of the Bible is to interpret it literally. The short essay briefly discussed the significance of Acts 8, 25 to 35 to this kind of study. And here's the theme you're looking for. Reading the Bible is not the same as understanding the Bible. All right. Now, on the final one, identify the proper letter. Here's the way it goes. Allegorical is letter B. Dogmatic is letter G, devotional is letter A, ecclesiastical is letter E, hyperliteral is letter H, liberal is letter C, neo-orthodox letter D, and proof text isolated letter F. How'd we do? We do good? All right. All right, good. Well, before we get into our study tonight, let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege we have of being here tonight, and thank you for your people who take the Word of God seriously. We have a church filled with people who basically do that. We love that, Lord. We know you love it. We pray that we would continue to learn and grow, Lord, and we'll thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we were talking last time about hermeneutics and the fact that it's an art and science. It's the art and science of Bible interpretation. 
And the reason why it's a science is because there are specific rules that govern the process. And the reason why it's an art is because the more you practice it, the more skilled you'll become. So it is an art and a science. And we said that the reason for studying, and we left off last time down on page, I think, 39, the most significant reason for studying hermeneutics is to clearly understand the true interpretation of the God-breathed, God-inspired truth. And if we don't understand the true interpretation of God's word, we can be very sincere in what we believe, but we can be sincerely wrong. When it comes to the Bible, there are many that speak about a variety of important issues, and then they use the scripture to defend their position. And as a result of this, they have their position and they use the scriptures to defend their position. You have a different group of interpretation that causes confusion. And as a result, the average person is kind of left with the idea, well, one interpretation is just as good as another. And the fact of the matter is, that is not true. But you'll hear people say, well, your interpretation is just as good as my interpretation. That is wrong. There is one true interpretation of a text in its context, and the others, quite frankly, are wrong. What if a doctor said that? Well, take any medicine. One medicine is just as good as another. I mean, it would be dangerous. And that's the same way when it comes to interpreting the Bible with the idea, well, one person's view is just as equal and as good to another. That's absolutely not true. And let me show you an example of one such issue. Go over to Jeremiah 29, if you would. Jeremiah chapter 29. And I'll show you an example that this verse is just butchered. You have churches built on this verse. I mean, this verse, I guarantee you this Sunday, in churches all across America, all across the world, will be presented this way. And I'll show you what they'll do with it. In Jeremiah 29, verse 11, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. There will be people all over this world this Sunday that will preach the prosperity gospel and they'll quote that verse. And they'll say, God has plans to prosper you. And they'll build a multi-million dollar ministry on that theme. God wants to prosper you. This has nothing to do with what this text is talking about. In fact, the context is pretty clear when you just back up to verse 10. For The Lord says, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I'll visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. What God was basically doing here in the context of the nation Israel was saying, you have got yourself into this desperate situation because of your sin. I'm going to bring you out of this situation after 70 years and take you back to your land and take you back to Jerusalem so that we can begin having a good relationship together again because that is my plan for you. That's what that verse is talking about. This verse is not talking about the fact that God has a plan to prosper every one of us and you need to know this. I mean, there are churches all over the nation that will just butcher that text. Well, that text isn't talking about that. So we need some system of sane interpretation to be able to sift through the religious things that people throw at you. Bible studies, small Bible study groups, quite frankly, can be very dangerous. I think it was Dr. Roy Zuck who said people who go to home Bible studies, realize what risky business that can be. 
One of the real dangers is that people go to some home and, and then they say, well, what does this passage mean to you? And I'm all for discussing the things of God and getting together and discussing Bible passages. I'm, I'm all for that. But before anybody can say, what does it mean to you? You should say, what does it even mean? I mean, what is the point of it? What is the text actually saying? And that often is left out. And without understanding what it means, you can get into some real situations. Dr. Roy Zuck cited an example from John 10, 28. That verse says, I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. And he used the illustration that one time at a Bible study, they were using that verse, what does it mean to you? And one person said, well, it means we're eternally secure. I mean, once we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, we're in the hands of the Lord, we're eternally secure. Came to the next person and said, well, what it means is no one can snatch you out of the hand of the Lord, but you can snatch yourself out of the hand. So you have all of these ideas being kicked around about a Bible verse, and nobody's actually discussing what the text is talking about in John chapter 10. I'll show you one that's really something. Go to the book of Nahum, if you would. Go to the book of Nahum. And I've heard this from more than one source on this one. It'll be an easy book to find because it's one of your favorite books, I know. <laughs> Nahum. What two. Nahum chapter 2. Man, somebody's already there. They're concerned with the chapter already, and the rest are trying to find Nahum. In Nahum chapter 2 and verse 4, the chariots race madly in the streets. They rush wildly in the squares. Their appearance is like torches. They flash to and fro like lightning flashes. Now, there has been more than one person that has gone to that and said, this is a prophetic picture of the fact that there's going to be a bunch of cars riding wildly through streets. I mean, that's what they say. This is a prophetic prediction that vehicles, all kinds of cars are going to run wildly through streets. This has nothing to do with that. I mean, the fact of the matter is, this is not talking about cars driving through streets. What this is talking about is the Lord is going to send Babylon to Nineveh to destroy Nineveh, and it's going to be a wild chase in which people are going to try to flee, but they aren't going to be able to do it. That's the text of Nahum. That's what Nahum's talking about. In fact, you'll notice when you begin the book of Nahum in chapter 1, God is a jealous and avenging God, and the Lord is an avenging and wrathful God. He takes vengeance on adversaries, and he's going to send Babylon into this land to literally put them to flight. And so to actually look at this text and tell people in a home Bible study what this is predicting is there's going to be major automobile traffic in cities that's going this way and that way is just ludicrous to the interpretation of the passage. But that's the kind of thing that happens. I don't think God ever intended his word to be handled like that. I mean, I don't think that God ever intended his word to be presented in such a way, well, let's just all sit down and talk about what it means to us. I mean, what we really need to be doing is exactly what we do, go straight through it and figure out what it means so that we can have an accurate interpretation, an accurate application. Otherwise, people do crazy things with the Bible. Bible study is not a free-for-all of whatever it means to you. When it comes to interpreting the scriptures, remember this. Somebody's right, somebody's wrong. If you have two opposing views to a text, you can say, well, one view is just as good as another. I don't buy that. I don't accept that. No, one view isn't just as good as another view. Somebody's right. Somebody's wrong. What we have to do is have a system where we can go to work and determine who's right. 
Now, the science of interpretation says there's only one true interpretation to God's inspired word, and that by following a true system of hermeneutics, we may come to that true interpretation, which is where we're headed in this study. Which brings us to the next question, what is exegesis? Now, the word exegesis comes from the Greek verb which means to lead out or show out or unfold or declare as it relates to biblical study. Exegesis means you go to a text of scripture and you precisely bring out or lead out or draw out what is actually there. You actually go to a passage of scripture and you bring out, lead out, or draw out by way of what's written there, the exact meaning of that text. Now, I want to show you a passage of Scripture where the word hermeneutics and exegesis is used. And to do that, I need you to go to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Because both words are used in the same context in Luke chapter 24. Now, in Luke 24, we pointed this out last week when we were in our study of hermeneutics. Because in Luke 24 and verse 27, we read, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained, and we pointed out that's the word hermeneutics. It's an intensive form of the word hermeneutics. The Lord Jesus Christ explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. So he gave a very thorough explanation of what was in the scriptures. Now, if you drop down to verse 35, They began to state their experience on the road and show how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. That word relate, they began to relate, is the word exegesis. So you have the word hermeneutics that's used in verse 27. You have the word exegesis that's used there in verse 35. It's translated by the English word relate. Now, when you track the word exegesis through the New Testament and it's used on several occasions, it does seem to present the idea of you are explaining or you're relating exactly what the text says, because that's the goal. The goal of exegesis is to carefully examine the written words of a text to determine the writer's actual meaning. That's the goal. John Grasmick defined exegesis as meaning to explain a word, sentence, paragraph, or a whole book by leading out the true and proper meaning of the text. I think that's a great definition of what exegesis is. You are actually giving an exposition of, as it were, or you're sharing what exactly that text is talking about. Exegesis is a high-definition form of reading and studying the Bible. It relates and explains what's actually there. That's what exegesis is. You go to a text, you look at a text, You see what's actually in the text, and then you say what's actually in the text. That's exegesis. Now, there are five major disciplines that are kind of closely connected to this field of study that we should probably be a little familiar with. The first one is hermeneutics, and we've already defined that. That's the art and science of the rules that must be followed in interpreting the true meaning of a biblical text. Exegesis is you're drawing out the exact historical and grammatical and technical meaning of a text expressed by the written text and by careful application of hermeneutical rules. Then you have what's called exposition, which is the communication of what's in the text. You actually communicate what the meaning of the text is and with relevance to the hearer. Then you have what's called homiletics. 
Homiletics is the art and science of organized structure for the public communication of the text. And then you have pedagogy, which is the art and science of teaching the true meaning and relevance of a biblical text. All of those are kind of intertwined terms, and if you read books, you'll see that. Now, the two disciplines that are most closely connected together when it comes to interpreting the Bible are hermeneutics and exegesis. These are the two that are really closely connected to each other. Hermeneutics provides the rules and guidelines to follow. Exegesis gives specific interpretation of a text based on the words and the grammar and the syntax. So hermeneutics gives us the principles. We're going to work through all these principles. In fact, I'm making little charts that I'm going to give you as handouts so you'll get opportunities to actually take it home down the road and actually go take a passage and look at it and we'll show you how to work through this. Dr. Chafer said hermeneutics was the laws or principles that must be followed to arrive at a true meaning of a text and exegesis is the application and implementation of the rules to get the interpretation. That's pretty good as to what I think the difference is. Now Dr. Roy Zuck gave a good illustration when he said hermeneutics is like a cookbook where you get the recipe for a cake. Exegesis is the actual process or the preparation work of putting all the ingredients together for baking the cake. I think that's a good illustration. And following the same illustration, homiletics would be dressing the cake up in a nice servable way and exposition would be serving the cake. So all of those things are intertwined. I just give you that by way of understanding a little of the key terms that are connected to this part of the study. Now, when we come to interpreting the Bible, we face some issues. When it comes to us trying to study the scriptures, we are up against some issues pertaining to interpretation. When we consider the fact that the first five books of the Bible were written around 1400 BC and the last book of the inspired scripture was written near 8095, we can logically expect we may have just a couple of issues that we have to think through when we're examining a writing that was done that many years ago, and anyone who attempts to understand the Bible must attempt to interpret the Bible, and everything we do to the Bible is subject to interpretation. God does not expect us to understand all reasons why he said something, but he does expect us to understand what he said. That is clear. He doesn't expect us to understand necessarily all the whys, but he does expect us to clearly understand what it is that he put in print for us to be able to understand. And the main problem of hermeneutics or Bible interpretation is this. What do the words written in the Bible actually say and what do the words actually mean? And there are eight challenges that we have to kind of jump over if we're going to arrive at a true interpretation. The first one is God's mind is infinite, our mind is finite. Let's just think about that for a minute. When we open the Bible, we're delving into infinite truth. That's a daunting challenge. When you put the Bible in your hands and you say, this book in writing has come from the mind of God. This book contains the wisdom and knowledge of God. Paul himself said the depths of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Who can even grasp this? The depths of the wisdom and knowledge of God. So we're up against that. When we come up against the Bible, we're up against the infinite God and his mind, and we have a finite mind. We have to start with that because that's reality. The second challenge we have is there are some things that are hard to understand. You know, there are some people who take the position we don't want to get too serious or deep in our understanding of God's word. We just want to keep it simple, as simple as we can. Well, what that basically says, frankly, is we're too lazy to get real serious about the discipline that it takes 
to understand the whole counsel of God. Just because it's hard doesn't mean it's not worth it, and it does not mean it isn't possible. Most things that are worth it are hard. I mean, most things that are worth it do require effort and a process. The third challenge we're up against is there's a time gap between us and the original writers and readers. Now, Moses wrote around 1400 BC, so you're looking at 3,600 years ago, and John's words were written around 80, 90 plus, about 2,000 years ago. So to understand the things that they're writing, we're going to need to crawl back through time and into Scripture to understand something about that. Let me illustrate the point. September 11th is Mary's birthday, and that's all I knew that date to mean until 2001. In just a few short minutes on Tuesday, September 11, 2001, everything about that date changed. On September 11, 2001, 19 Islamic militant terrorists attacked, hijacked four jet airplanes and carried out four suicide missions. Two jets hit the Twin Towers World Trade Center in New York. One jet hit the Pentagon and one jet crashed in a field in Pennsylvania. And on that one day, nearly 3,000 innocent people were killed. Now, prior to that, when you heard someone say September 11, it didn't mean much to anybody. I mean, it did because I knew it was Mary's birthday. But now when you hear somebody say September 11, most people's minds focus on the terrible terrorist attacks that were leveled against our country that cost thousands of people their lives. All we have to say to most people of the world is the date September 11, and they know what we literally mean. But now let's turn the clock forward to 2500 A.D. Let's go 500 years into the future. I don't think things are going to go that long. I think we'll be raptured there. But for the sake of the illustration, let's just go 500 years from now into the future. And let us hypothetically suppose you're reading a book about phobias or fears, or somebody living here is reading a book about phobias or fears. And as they're reading, they come to part of the book where they read, I've been terribly afraid ever since September 11. I can't eat. I can't sleep. I'm often paranoid. In fact, I don't even want to fly anymore. Now, if you're reading those things 500 years from now, you're probably going to say, what in the world does that mean? What is the connection between the date September 11th and this person being afraid? Am I supposed to be petrified when it's September 11th? Does something bad happen on that day? And what in the world does September 11th have to do with flying an airplane? What does that mean? So now if you're living 500 years from now, if you really want to accurately understand what you're reading and you want to give a proper interpretation to that, you're going to have to do a little research. You're going to have to crawl back in time about 500 years. You're going to have to pick up some history book. You're going to have to find out what actually happened that would cause people to be afraid on September 11th. You could speculate what may have happened, but if you wanted to know, if you're thinking, well, why does this person say they're paranoid ever since September 11th? You would have to go back in time in history, the history of the United States, and you'd have to find out what happened on September 11th of 2001. And the moment you would begin to research that to come to a true interpretation of the meaning of that, you would have begun the scientific study of hermeneutics and exegesis. 
you would have just begun the process of understanding what in the world does that mean. One would carefully have to analyze history. One would have to look at the context, the words, to describe what happened if they were going to come to a true interpretation of what it meant. Roy Zuck, in his book, Basic Bible Interpretation, said it well when he said, when it comes to interpreting the Bible, we were not there and we cannot talk to writers or readers or hearers to get first-hand knowledge. So we would have to somehow use tools to crawl back in time to figure out what in the world are they talking about? What is going on here? What is the culture? What does this mean? That would be the responsibility of someone in a hermeneutical study. Now, when we go through the book of Revelation, we learn John got his own interpretive angel. That'd be nice. That'd be nice if God gave us our own interpretive angel so that we could just look at a passage and we could just say, well, now, hey, Tell me what that means. I mean, Daniel wanted to know everything, and sometimes an angel would reveal to him exactly what it meant. But God doesn't work that way. He says, I've given you my scriptures now. I've given you my word in writing. Don't add to it. Don't subtract from it. It's all there. Now you go to work on accurately understanding what is there. So we have to begin by realizing there is a time gap between the original writers and readers and us. That's an interpretive challenge. It's not something that we can't do. In fact, I'm convinced God expects us to do it when he's given us great tools. We'll give you a list of some of these tools later. But this is the challenge. Now, there's another challenge we're up against, and that is there's a major gap in geography between us and the original writers and readers. I want you to go to the book of Numbers, if you would, please. Numbers chapter 33. In fact, I was just reading this this morning in my own devotions. This is where I'm at in reading through the scriptures. In Numbers 33, and this is the fun text to read at four in the morning, I'll tell you that. Numbers 33, notice verse 5, Then the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramesses and capped at Sukkoth. From verse 5 down to verse 49 you have a list of 41 campsites. 41 campsites. In fact, it says this is where they camped. That's what verse 5 says, they camped there. So in their 40 years of wandering, they go to 41 different campsites in 40 years of wandering through the wilderness. And each of these campsites, as far as we can determine, is 25 to 30 miles apart. So this nation is moving from campsite to campsite. What do we know about that? Well, there are some things when we went through the book of Numbers we couldn't learn a lot about because we were having a difficult time just figuring out where they were. But there were some things in there we could learn some things about by carefully studying it. See, that's a geographical issue that we need to address. We need to track this. Where are they moving? What direction are they going? How are we going to find this out? How are we going to go back in there and figure out where these campsites were and how they moved? I mean, we live where we live here in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Those original writers and readers live where they live. We live in Kalamazoo. They lived in lands way away from us. 
They live, for example, some of them in Egypt. That's 6,174 miles away. Israel is 6,112 miles away. The Mediterranean world is 5,264 miles from Kalamazoo. Iraq is 6,305 miles from Kalamazoo. Turkey is 5,705 miles from Kalamazoo. Paul spent a lot of time there. Rome is 4,707 miles from Kalamazoo. And Spain is 4,067 miles from Kalamazoo. So we're thinking, well, you know, we do have a little gap here in geography. So if we're going to really crawl back into that passage and understand it with the full color, we're going to have to go back there and figure out what in the world is going on there. For example, in 1 Samuel 22.1, it says that David escaped to the cave of Adullam. The cave of Adullam. That must be a real important place because it's mentioned in Samuel, it's mentioned in Chronicles, it's mentioned in Psalms. Psalm 57 in the superscription. They say that he wrote this when he was in that cave of Adullam, when he escaped to the cave of Adullam. Now this cave is located 6,083 miles away from Kalamazoo, Michigan. And we don't have caves around here. I mean, not that I know of. So if we're going to think in terms of what's a cave and what's it like and what's he in here, we're going to have to do some research. We're going to have to, first of all, see everything we can find out about that cave. And then if we can bring in some things that we understand about a cave that maybe we've been in or a cave that we've seen, we'll be able to do that. And that will give us a real perspective of what a cave is like, what cave life would be like. And so to properly handle the scriptures, we have to jump over that hurdle. We have to say, well, there's a difference in time frame here. There's a difference in geography here. And so we're going to have to do the best that we can to crawl back in there and find out exactly what's there so we can understand this text accurately. Well, I think that's a pretty good stopping point tonight. I've filled your head with a bunch of things there. And in the next weeks, we're going to have a a Wednesday study while we're taking a little break. Mr. Kelly's going to lead on the attributes of God. You'll find this not only an interesting study, but it's critical. It's critical to doctrine, critical to life, the attributes of God. It's what makes God God. It's the things that that make him who he is. So you're going to want to be part of that. So uh, thank you for coming. Good night. The Lord bless you.